And while you're turning there, I just want to point your attention to the middle of the auditorium where we have a, a couple that's been married for one month and one day now, uh, Jake and Christine. I, I looked up the date, actually. Uh, <laughs> it is so good to see you guys. <laughs> they, they got married at a country club down in Long Beach, across the street from the Long Beach airport. So there was two flybys of, of um, helicopters. It was very, very <laughs> interesting, but it was good. I hope um, you guys are doing well and all the rest of you as, as well tonight. We are in the book of Ezekiel, and as we've been going through this uh, amazing book that very few people have ever read, uh, very seldom do you hear it taught about unless you go straight through the whole Bible or unless you're checking off boxes as you're going through a uh, year-long uh, reading through the scriptures. It's one of those sections as we've been looking at the book of Ezekiel of a guy who's literally had to go through horrific times. Remember at the very beginning he had to eat that bread that was roasted over dung. And of course, he cried out, Lord, please, no, I, I can't eat it over human dung. Uh, allow me to eat it over, you know, animal dung, you know, yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, the various things that he had to do, laying on his right side and then laying on his left side for months and months and months, and then making a replica of the city of Jerusalem some 900 miles away, being the vision, the news for the people in a foreign land. First 24 chapters, as we've been seeing, are all about Israel. And at the very end of the 24th chapter, Ezekiel's wife dies. After having to deal with all these people that are obstinate, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, these people that don't even want to listen to him, and now when his wife dies, they finally ask the question, what does this all mean? And he finally has their attention. In the next eight chapters, from chapter 25 all the way up to chapter 32, the section that we're in, in now, God points his grace, his mercy now to the foreign nations that surround Israel. And he warns them just like he's been warning Israel and Judah. Last week we talked about Tyre, that city that was literally the trade capital of the world on the sea. They controlled any trade that occurred on the Mediterranean Ocean. Before that, we saw the other surrounding states, Edom and Ammon and Moab and Philistia. And now tonight, we go further south to the northern border of Africa, where we call Egypt. And in the first part of chapter 29, we read this. On January 7th, during the 10th year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn and face Egypt and prophesy against Pharaoh, the king, and all the people of Egypt. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. I am your enemy, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lurking in the streams of the Nile. For you have said, the Nile River is mine. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and drag you out to the land and 
fish sticking to your scales. I will leave you and all your fish stranded in the wilderness to die. And you will lie unburied on the open ground. For I've given you as food to the wild animals and birds. And all the people of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. For to Israel you were just a staff made of reeds. When Israel leaned on you, you splintered and broke and stabbed her in the armpit. And when she put her weight on you, you collapsed and her legs gave way. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this um, very seldom read passage in the Scripture, this passage that is about a, a nation that's halfway around the world, this nation, as we're going to see, that, that you warn on purpose. This nation that is haughty and proud, just like all the other nations that we've been seeing about in this section. Lord, help us never to point our finger at, at them, but help us to see ourselves in this chapter, in this section, in your word. Help us to see our proud heart. The things that we've built, that we think that are ours, that we think that we have done in our own strength. All, all the things that we, we have that we um, maybe even brag about to other people. Lord, help us to see ourselves in these passages. Help us to understand just like with Egypt, just like with Tyre, just like with the surrounding nations, just like with Israel and Judah... You are calling us to be humble and to acknowledge that it is you that has given us all. It's you that has given us the strength that we have to earn what we get. It is you that has given us even our breath to be alive. And so, Lord, we serve your good pleasure. And as we sang tonight, we declare that you are holy, holy, holy. You are the one that we give all praise to for everything that we have and everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. These next four chapters, starting in chapter 29, these are all dedicated to the nation of Egypt. And you remember Egypt plays a big role in the nation of Israel. This is where the Israelites came out from, right? All the way back in the book of Exodus, they were the ones that were slaves to uh, the Egyptians. And at that time, they were a world power. Uh, they had math, they had uh, universities, they had architecture, they had agriculture, they had all the various uh, institutes that made them a great uh, nation, not only in terms of economy and agriculture, but also in terms of war as well. They had the most powerful army at the time in the book of Exodus. Now, unfortunately, they've declined in power. They are no longer a world power on the scene. The Babylonians have taken that place, and they have their eyes set on Egypt, and God is warning them. The first description that we see of the book uh, or the nation of Egypt is uh, this amazing picture here in the third verse. I am your enemy, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lurking in the streams of the Nile. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, nature shows, you know, especially of, of the Nile uh, River. I got a picture here for you guys. 
Uh, th this is one of those, you know, animals that lives in the Nile River. And in fact, this is what Egypt compared themselves to, uh, the great Nile crocodile. It rhymes, by the way, too. And these crocodiles were known to roam up and down the Nile River, not just in Egypt, but throughout Africa. And they would, of course, you know, eat animals. And you've always heard about the migrations of animals. And, and who waits there at the crossing of the Nile River for those animals to try and jump across? Who is it? It's the crocodiles, exactly, waiting for them to grab a nice chunk of juicy, you know, whatever it is, wildebeest or deer or antelope or whatever it is. You see, Egypt is compared to this mighty beast that can grow to 10, 15, 20 feet long, this massive Nile uh, crocodile. And what does God say is going to happen to the beast that is Egypt? It says it there in the next section. I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and drag you out on the land with fish sticking to your scales. Do, do you see the picture? That this mighty crocodile, God is going to literally drag from the river with the fish that have been stuck to the scales and put it on the dry land. And, and you all know that when, when the crocodile is in the water, they're able to move agile. They're very, very strong. They're able to grab an animal and drag them under and drown them and then be able to eat them, right? But when they're on the land, uh, they're a lot slower, especially if they're out in dry areas away from uh, uh, water. What will eventually happen to the crocodile? It'll die. It, it will become uh, dehydrated and it will die. And this is exactly what God is saying about Egypt. God is going to drag them out of their homeland and they will eventually uh, die so much so that it says in verse 5 you will lie unburied on the open ground for I've given you as food to the wild animals and the birds what happens when a crocodile is taken from its environment it dies that strong animal that once was able to conquer almost anything in the river is now dehydrated, covered in flies, as it says here, food for the wild animals and the birds. Verse 8, it continues on. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will bring an army against you, O Egypt, and destroy both people and animals. The land of Egypt will become a desolate wasteland, and the Egyptians will know that I am uh, the Lord. And of course, we see these two phrases that are used more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the Bible. Sovereign Lord. We see that throughout the book of Ezekiel. And then also the phrase that they know that I am the Lord. What is the point of every single one of the prophecies in the book of Ezekiel? And so that the people that hear it know that God is the Lord. Does God want other nations, even Gentile nations, even people that aren't Jews, to know that he is God? Yes. And thank God, by the way, because that includes us, right? 
God, God wants us to know who he is. He wants us to have a personal relationship with him. It continues on there at the end of verse 9. Because you said the Nile River is mine, I made it. I am now the enemy of both you and your river. Make the land of Egypt a totally desolate wasteland from Migdal to Aswan as far south as the border of Ethiopia. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you have something and, and, and you, you know, treasure that thing, whatever it is. Maybe it's an automobile or a boat or a house or even a, a person or a child or, or a spouse or a job position, whatever it may be, and you lost that thing. And you realized it, it wasn't actually yours. It had just been loaned to you for a certain amount of time. You see, everything that we have in this world, everything that we have in our life is from the Lord. And Egypt, of course, they claimed that the Nile River, this massive river that's over 4,000 miles long, going all the way from the middle of Africa all the way up to the Mediterranean Ocean, this massive river, they claimed it as theirs. E Egypt is saying, this river is mine. And of course, you know that they had used it for agricultural purposes. They had harnessed the power of the Nile uh, River. They had used it because they were able to get not only fish, but also fresh water from the Nile River. They used it for their own purposes, and it made their nation great. But unfortunately, they said, it's theirs, it's mine, it's a possession, rather than acknowledging who's the one that actually gave it to them. And who was it that gave them the Nile River? It was God. In fact, God's going to remind them of that in verse 11. For 40 years, not a soul will pass that way, neither people nor animals. It will become completely uninhabited. I will make Egypt desolate, and it will be surrounded by other desolate nations. Its cities will be empty and desolate for 40 years, surrounded by other ruined cities. I will scatter the Egyptians to distant lands, and just like the nation of Israel that's going to be taken away captive to Babylon, so too will the Egyptians. They will also be scattered as well. But this is what the Sovereign Lord also says there in verse 13. At the end of the 40 years, I will bring the Egyptians home again from the nations to which they have been scattered. I will restore the prosperity of Egypt and bring its people back to the land of Pathros and southern Egypt from which they came. But Egypt will remain an unimportant minor kingdom. It will be the lowliest of all the nations, never again great enough to rise above its neighbors. This is written in 500 B.C., 586 B.C. And is that true today? Did, did Egypt ever again rise to the power that it once had back in history? No. No. The, 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 you know, the prophecies that are in the scriptures come uh, true. But do you understand that there's a greater depth to this? Because when they come back, 
they're going to know who brought them back. You see, it's going to be the Lord that uh, releases them. In fact, in verse 16, it describes it there. Then Israel will no longer be tempted to trust in Egypt for help. Egypt's shattered condition will remind Israel of how sinful she was to trust Egypt in earlier days. Then Israel will know that I am the sovereign Lord. What is the purpose of every single one of these prophecies? And so the people that are hearing it will know that God is God. Why do you come to church? Why do you come? I mean, you could be doing anything right now. I mean, you guys are the, the good ones. You come on Wednesday nights, right? You know. Or, or else you work on Sundays or have other schedules on Sundays. I don't know what it is, you know. But, but, but you understand every time you come to church, whether it's Wednesday nights or, or Sundays or Friday nights or Monday nights or whenever it is that you come, do you understand that there's a message for you to know who God is? If the Bible is taught, the word of God is going forth to show you that God is God. And just like all these prophecies in the Old Testament that we've been going through, starting all the way back some, you know, two and a half years ago when I was able to, uh, to take over all the way back in the book of Psalms and, and going through Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Lamentations and Ezekiel, all these prophetic books that, you know, very seldom do we understand or even be able to, to read for ourselves. Every single one of them proclaims who God is. Continues on there in verse 17. This is again about another three months in the future. This is now April 26th. And as, as, as you know, when we started the book of Ezekiel, uh, we're, we're in the New Living Translation. And, and the great thing about the New Living Translation is that it actually gives dates, you know. And, and so we actually get to see that, oh, this is three months later after the previous prophecy. In fact, these four chapters are over a period of two years and two months. Okay, so starting in chapter 29, ending at the end of chapter 32, this is a period of about two years and two months. On April 26th, the first day of the new year, during the 27th year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, the army of the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon fought so hard against Tyre that the warriors' heads were rubbed bare and their shoulders were raw and blistered. Yet Nebuchadnezzar and his army won no plunder to compensate them for all their work. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will carry off its wealth plunder everything it has so he can pay his army. Yes, I've given him the land of Egypt as a reward for his work, says the sovereign Lord, because he was working for me when he destroyed Tyre. And if you were here last week, you remember uh, the nation of Tyre thought it was uh, invincible. It was an island nation. It controlled the entire Mediterranean Ocean. All trade had to go through Tyre if it went through any part of the Mediterranean Ocean in order to come to uh, the land. And it was Babylon that for 13 years 
fought against Tyre. And what they did is they literally carried the old city of Tyre, the land city of Tyre, and they made a bridge 60 meters long, 60 meters wide, all the way across to Tyre. And because of that, as we see here, the description, and God's word is always so descriptive, what happened to the soldiers as they're carrying all this debris in order to make a bridge from the land to the island city of Tyre? Their, their heads became bare and their shoulders became bare because they're carrying all this debris. They have to wear these helmets for hours and hours and they go bald wearing them. They, they have to exert this strength just to build a bridge and they get nothing for it. In fact, Tyre had shipped all their wealth far, far away. They had put it in various places in what is called modern-day Europe now. And so because of that, Babylon, when they captured the city-state of Tyre, got nothing for it. Just blisters, bald heads, and sore shoulders. That's it. And so what does God say is going to be their payment? Egypt. So now they're going to come south, and I have a map here too. As we've been seeing for the last um, uh, three weeks now, we've been in this section of the surrounding nations. Two weeks ago, we were in Ammon, Moab, Edom, and uh, Philistia, which isn't listed there. Last week, we were in Tyre and Sidon, and now we're in the southern area, Egypt, the northern part of Africa. And so when De Babylon had conquered Tyre, received no payment for it, all this hard work, all this wasted effort, where do they now set their sights? On Egypt. That great monster, the crocodile of the Nile. And they have their eyes set on them for payment. Verse 21, it continues, And the day will come, when I will cause the ancient glory of Israel to revive, and then Ezekiel, your words will be respected, then they will know that I am the Lord. What is the point of every single one of these prophecies? So that we know that God's word is true. Chapter 30, it continues on there. This is another message that came to me from the Lord. Son of man, prophesy and give this message from the sovereign Lord. Weep and wail for that day, for the terrible day is almost here. The day of the Lord it is a day of clouds and gloom, a day of despair for the nations. A sword will come against Egypt, and those who are slaughtered will cover the ground. Its wealth will be carried away and its foundations destroyed. The land of Ethiopia will be ravished. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all Arabia and all their allies will be destroyed in that uh, war. For this is what the Lord says. All of Egypt's allies will fall and the pride of her power will end. From Migdal to Aswan, they will be slaughtered by the sword, says the sovereign Lord. Egypt will be desolated, surrounded by desolate nations. And its cities will be in ruins, surrounded by other ruined cities. And the people of Egypt will know that I am the Lord when I have set Egypt on fire and destroyed all their allies. And at that time we will send swift messengers and ships 
to terrify the complacent Ethiopians. Great panic will come upon them. To that day, Egypt's certain destruction, watch for it. It is sure to uh, come. Now, of course, all these cities, nations that we see uh, listed here, all these places that we see, these are all part of a northern African region. These were the nations that had made alliances with Egypt in order to protect themselves from uh, the Babylonians coming. And of course, it is to no avail. Verse 10, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. By the power of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, I will destroy the hordes of Egypt. He and his armies, the most ruthless of all, will be sent to demolish the land. They will make war against Egypt until slaughtered Egyptians cover the ground. I will dry up the Nile River and sell the land to wicked men. I will destroy the land of Egypt and everything in it by the hand of foreigners. I, the Lord have spoken. Can you imagine this mighty river, this Nile River that Egypt had claimed was theirs, that they were able to harness for their own uh, abilities, for their own prosperity, and then to have that Nile River taken away from them? That this 4,000 or yeah, 4,100 foot or mile river, this massive river that flows from the center of Africa all the way up to the Mediterranean Ocean. By the way, I, I got a picture for you guys. Do you know that the Nile River actually flows up? Did you know that? Right? Look, look at this. I'll, I'll show you guys right there. It actually flows from Africa in the south up north to uh, the Mediterranean Ocean. So it flows up. It flows from south uh, to north. It goes through the upper Egypt, which is actually in the south, and the lower Egypt, which is actually in the north, okay? This is where all these uh, cities that we've been seeing are all at okay this aswan and these various cities that are listed here memphis and thebes and all these other cities that we see here and you can see in the northern section how the nile river fans out do you know why it does that it's because the egyptians harnessed the power of the nile river they used it for their agriculture they, they used it for their ability to be able to get fresh water to their crops. So even in a desert area, they were able to have a strong agricultural society. If you remember from your history classes all the way back in junior high school, this was a, a major power because they dwelt along the Nile River. What is Babylon going to do for the first time in history? take away the Nile River from the Egyptians. So much so that they're going to be scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire themselves, dead Egyptians everywhere. Verse 13, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will smash the idols of Egypt and the images at Memphis. This isn't Tennessee. 
There will be no rulers left in Egypt. Terror will sweep the land. I will destroy southern Egypt, set fire to Zoan, and bring judgment against Thebes. I will pour out my fury on Pelusium and the strongest fortress of Egypt, and I will stamp out the hordes of Thebes. Yes, I will set fire to all Egypt. Can you imagine this nation that is built around fresh water that is 4,000 miles long is set on fire and not able to be put out? Why? Because God has his eye set against Egypt. Pelusium will be racked with pain. Thieves will be torn apart. Memphis will live in constant terror. The young men of Elopius and Budastus will die in battle. And the women will be taken away as slaves. And when I come to break the proud strength of Egypt, it will be a dark day for Tapanes too, a dark cloud will cover Tapanes and its daughters will be led away as captive. And so I will greatly punish Egypt. Why? And they will know that I am the Lord. The end of every single one of the prophecies, this phrase that is used more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the Bible, that they will know that I am the Lord. Is there a purpose for what God is doing? And by the way, is there a purpose for what God's doing in your life? I don't know what you're going through, but does God have a purpose for it? And the ultimate goal is so that you will know that the Lord is God. That he is the sovereign Lord. There in chapter 30 verse 20. It continues on. Uh, going ahead just a, uh, just a couple of days. On April 29th. During the 11th year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. This message came to me from the Lord. Son of man. I, will bro I have broken the arm of Pharaoh. The king of Egypt. His arm has not been put in a cast. So that it may heal. Neither has it been bound up with a splint. To make it strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am the enemy of Pharaoh. The king of Egypt. I will break both of his arms. The good arm along with the broken one. And I will make his sword clatter to the ground. Do you see the picture? This warrior. This fighter that is strong. That uses his arms in battle. To hold that sword. One arm is broken. And he's trying to hold the, uh, the sword in his other arm. And that arm gets broken too. Now do they have any strength to lift up a sword or a weapon? No, of course not. Verse 23, I will scatter the Egyptians to many lands throughout the world. I will strengthen the armies of Babylon's king and put my sword in his hand. But I will break the arms of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he will lie there mortally wounded, groaning in pain. Do you see the description, the, the great way that we see the images in the book of Ezekiel? You can actually see this warrior lying on the ground, groaning in pain because both of his arms are broken. What does it say there at the end of that chapter? I will strengthen the arms of king of Babylon while the arms of Pharaoh fall useless to his sides. When I put my sword in the hand of Babylon's king and he brings it against the land of Egypt, Egypt will know 
that I am the Lord. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations, dispersing them throughout the earth. Then they will know that I am the Lord. What is the purpose of God moving in history? What is the purpose of God moving in nations? Where, where one nation is raised up to a power and then brought down. Who is the one that's behind the scenes in history? It's God. By the way, it's, and you all know this, his story, history. God is the one that writes history. We see it so clearly throughout the scriptures. Thank God for the book of Ezekiel, chapter 31. And by the way, we're probably going to get through four chapters this week, which is amazing. I think it's a record. Uh, chapter 30, well, at least I hope so. Chapter 31, on June 21st, during the 11th year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, just another about three months after the previous prophecy this message came to me from the lord son of man give this message to pharaoh king of egypt and all his hordes to whom could you compare your greatness you are like mighty assyria which was once like a cedar of lebanon with beautiful branches that cast deep forest shade and with its top high among the clouds Deep springs watered it and helped it to grow tall and luxuriant. The water flowed around it like a river, streaming to all the trees nearby. This great tree towered high, higher than all the other trees around it. Do you see the descriptive words that Ezekiel is painting in the eyes of the reader? We go from this person that has both of his arms broken, groaning beside the Nile River, and now we see this mighty, luxuriant tree that is taller than any of the trees around it. This great tree towered high, verse 5 says, higher than all the trees around it. It prospered and grew long, thick branches because of all the water at its roots. The Nile fed this mighty empire of Egypt. By, by the way, who was the one that allowed this to happen? Verse 6, birds nested in its branches and in its shade. All the wild animals gave birth. All the great nations of the world lived in its shadows. It was strong and beautiful with wide spreading branches for its roots went deep into abundant water. No other cedar in the garden of God could rival it. No cypress had branches to equal it. No plane tree had boughs to compare. No tree in the garden of God came close to its uh, close to it in beauty, because I made this tree so beautiful and gave it such magnificent foliage. Who is the one that built up Egypt? It's God. In fact, so much so, it was the envy of all the other trees of Eden, the garden of God. And therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because Egypt became proud and arrogant. Because it set itself so high above the others. With its top reaching to the clouds. And this mirrors what we learned about last week from the nation of, of Tyre. 
this proud city, uh, you know, and unlike Egyptian, the Egyptians, they're on a, 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 the Nile River. Tyre was an island nation. It had huge walls. It had a, a navy that was greater than any other navy at the world at that time. They thought they were invincible and their pride really came to them and they lifted themselves up. They bragged about all that they had. And you remember from last week, all the things that were listed there, the exotic uh, materials, the exotic people, the exotic animals, all the things, the spices that came through uh, Tyre. And they were proud of it. The same thing with the nation of Egypt. Verse 11 I will hand it over to a mighty nation that will destroy it as its wickedness deserves. I have already discarded it. A foreign army, the terror of the nations, has cut it down and left it fallen on the ground. Its branches are scattered across the mountains, valleys, and ravines of the land. All those who lived in its shadow have gone away and left it lying there. What happens when we lift ourselves up high? And again, it's so easy to say, oh, that was back then, that was that nation. They were the ones that were proud, but we can do exactly the same thing. We can do exactly the same thing that Egypt does. Verse 13, the birds roost on its fallen trunk and the wild animals lie among its branches, let the tree of no other nation proudly exult in its own prosperity, though it be higher than the clouds and it be watered from the depths, for all are doomed to die, to go down to the depths of the earth. They will land in the pit along with everyone else on earth. Do you understand what this description is saying? This, this once great and mighty tree, this, this once great and strong man now literally groaning on the ground because of both of its arms broken. This great and mighty tree now lying on the ground, the branches scattered all over the place because of their pride, because of what they thought that they accomplished in their own strength. And then verse 15 comes along. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. When Assyria went down to the grave, I made the deep springs mourn. I stopped its rivers and dried up its abundant waters. I clothed Lebanon in black, caused the trees of the field to wilt. I made the nation shake with fear at the sound of its fall, for I sent it down to the grave with all the others who descended in the pit and all the other proud trees of Eden, the most beautiful and the best of Lebanon, the one whose roots went deep into the water, took comfort to find there with them in the depths of the earth. Its allies, too, were all destroyed and had passed away. They had gone down to the grave. All those nations that had lived in its shade, all these nations that Egypt had literally supported and helped, they were the ones that supported Assyria. They were the ones that supported these northern African nations. Oh, Egypt, to which of the trees of Eden will you compare your strength and glory? You too will be brought down to the depths with all these other nations. You will lie there among the outcasts who have died 
by the sword. This will be the fate of Pharaoh and all his hordes. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Have you ever cheered when you heard about someone on the news, you know, maybe a rich person or a popular person or, or someone who, you know, always boasted about who they were and, and, and then they got in trouble? And, and what do we do? You know, thank God they got what they deserved, right? You know, and you clap. You're happy, right? Especially if there's someone that annoys you. Or, or someone that, you know, just, just gets on your nerves. <clears throat> and we, we always look at other people. We always look at the pride of other people. We always see the pride in other people really, really distinctly and very, very clearly. It's easy for us to point out in other people, right? Just like we see here in the scriptures, you know, we see it in Tyre, we see it in Egypt, we see it in the various people of Israel and Judah, we see it in them, but we're blind when we're pride, when we're proud, right? We're, we're blind when we ourselves have exactly the same attitude, when, when we ourselves can boast in our own abilities. Oh, we, we may not show it with, you know, people at church, you know, but we'll show it in our, you know, maybe our spouse or family or something like that, or friends. We, 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 we have, a, a, you know, just like even Satan himself, that pride that comes up in our lives. Why does God allow hard times, discipline to come into our lives, just like in the city of Egypt, just like in the nation of Tyre, just like in the nation of Israel and Judah, why does God allow us to be disciplined? To humble us, exactly. To bring us to a point where we understand that we must be reliant upon God. There, there's a, a patch right there. You can see it right in, right, right in that area. Uh, on Sunday, I was giving a hug to my friend Dominique, and my hand, you know, and it fell. I'm, I'm telling all of you this, by the way. There, and his coffee fell on the ground because of me, you know. And I, I, I'm, you know, think I'm giving him a hug because I'm his friend, you know. And I accidentally, and it was, trust me, it was an accident. It wasn't on purpose, but his coffee fell. And he was so humble. He, he, he came back with the perfect, it's just dirty water. It's okay. He was so humble about it. And I love hearing the humble stories of the people in our church. The, those of you that, you know, humbly give of yourselves to other people. And it's because we, we go to a, a group of people that are striving to look more and more like Jesus. We, we're, we're not proud or, you know, we're not uh, boastful. And I'm so glad to go to a church and especially, you know, in the various services that we have, the privilege of knowing people that are humble. But how did you become humble? Was it an easy road? No, it's hard. It takes um, 
humility and discipline in our life. Same thing is happening to the nation of Egypt. Same thing is happening to the nation of Israel. In verse 32, on March the 3rd, during the 12th year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, mourn for Egypt, king of Egypt, and give him this message. Do, do, you, do you see that word there that starts with the M? Ezekiel is called to mourn for Egypt, to cry, to wail over to the destruction of Egypt. Not, not to boast about it, not to say, we're better than you. You know, no, Israel's destroyed too, by the way. But, but he's called to mourn for the surrounding nations. Son of man, mourn for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and give him this message. Whenever someone sins, we shouldn't boast about it or say, you deserve what's coming to you. We should mourn for them. We should want them to repent, as God does throughout the scriptures, even for the Gentile nations, you think of yourself as a strong young lion among the nations, but you are really just a sea monster heaving around in your own rivers, stirring up mud with your feet. And by the way, I have a picture. Another picture, yeah. What, what is that crocodile waiting to do? Yeah. You know, those... You know, and that's why so many animals go across because, you know, if, if one of them gets caught, then the rest at least can jump over, you know, the crocodile. But what happens to the one that's the, you know, sacrificial wildebeest? It gets eaten, right? Egypt was that Nile uh, crocodile. And when he moved in the Nile River, what did he do with all the sediment and the mud? Yeah. It made it very, very uh, muddy in their feet. Verse 3 there, it describes it in such great detail. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will send many people to catch you in my net and haul you out of the river water. How many people does it take to catch one crocodile? Not just one. Not just one. Right? How many people? It's going to take many people to drag this huge, massive crocodile out of the river, put it in the wilderness so that it will die out of its environment. I will leave you stranded on the land to die. All the birds of the heavens will land on you and the wild animals of the whole earth will gorge themselves on you. This is exactly what we read at the very beginning in chapter 29. God is repeating himself again. But this time he's causing Ezekiel to mourn for them. This once great, mighty Nile crocodile is now out of its element, no longer able to grab the animals that are coming by it. It is dying, dehydrated, and starving in the wilderness. Verse 5, I will scatter your flesh on the hills and fill the valleys with your bones. I will drench the earth with your gushing blood all the way to the mountains, filling the ravines to the brim. And when I blot you out, I will veil the heavens and darken the stars and I will cover the sun 
with a cloud, and the moon will not give you its light. It will darken the bright stars overhead and cover your land in darkness. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. God is in control of the fate of Egypt. I will disturb many hearts when I bring news of your downfall to distant nations you have never seen. Yes, I will shock many lands and their kings will be terrified at your fate. They will shudder in fear for their lives as I brandish my sword before them in the day of your fall. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. And of course, this has never happened to Egypt ever in its history. All the way from the time, even before they were a great nation. All the way back to the time of Joseph, by the way. At this time, all the way through the captivity of Israel in Egypt as slaves. And when they had left and throughout the history, they have never been conquered in this great mass. And so now for the first time in history, Egypt is going to be destroyed. This once great and mighty nation. Look at the description here at the end of verse 11. The sword of the king of Babylon will come against you. I will destroy your hordes with the swords of mighty warriors, the terror of the nations. They will shatter the pride of Egypt and all its hordes will be destroyed. I will destroy all your flocks and herds that graze beside the streams. Never again will people or animals muddy those waters with their feet. And then I will let the waters of Egypt become calm again. And they will flow as smoothly as olive oil, says the sovereign Lord. And when I destroy Egypt and strip you of everything you own and strike down all your people, then you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, this is the funeral song they will sing for Egypt. Let all the nations mourn. Let them mourn for Egypt and its hordes. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. What happens when you let water stand still? It becomes smooth, right? Until you go jumping in it again, you know, or, or, or go swimming on it or put a boat on it or, or people go into it. But, but when everything leaves, all the people, all the boats, all the fishing activities, when they leave, what happens then to the water? It becomes smooth as glass. That's what that's going to happen to the Nile River, verse 17. And, and again, this is over a, a two-year, two-month uh, period that this is being uh, spoken. This is now two years, two months to the day from the first prophecy on March 17th during the 12th year, another message came to me from the Lord, son of man, weep for the hordes of Egypt and for the other mighty nations, for I will send them down to the world below in company with those who descend to the pit, saying to them, O Egypt, are you lovelier than the other nations? No. So go down to the pit and lie there among the outcasts. The Egyptians will fall with the many who have died by the sword. For the sword is drawn against them. Egypt and its hordes will be dragged away to their judgment. Downed in the grave. Mighty leaders will mockingly welcome Egypt and its allies saying, They have come down. They lie among the outcasts. Hordes slaughtered by the sword. 
Assyria lies there, surrounded by the graves of its armies, those who were slaughtered by the sword. Their graves are in the depths of the pit, and they are surrounded by their allies. They struck terror in the hearts of people everywhere, but now they have been slaughtered by the sword. Not only is Egypt in the pit, not only is Assyria in the pit, but their allies as well. You understand what that means? All those people that surround people that brag and boast and their fair-weather friends, they're there for the wealth, they're there for the parties, they're there for the you know, debauchery and all the things that go on in the evil world. What's going to happen to them too? They're all going to be dragged down to hell. They're all going to be dragged down to the pit. Egypt and its allies, Assyria and their allies are all dragged down Listen to the rest of these nations. Verse 24. Elam lies there surrounded by the graves of all its hordes. Those who were slaughtered by the sword. They struck terror in the hearts of the people everywhere. But now they have descended as outcasts to the world below. Now they lie in the pit and share the shame of those who have gone before them. They have a resting place among the slaughtered, surrounded by the graves, all their hordes. Yes, they terrorized the nations when they lived, but now they lie in shame with others in the pit. All of them outcasts, slaughtered by the sword. If we don't humble ourselves, we will be shamed in the afterlife. Do you understand what it's saying here? If we don't humble ourselves now, what will happen after we die? We'll be ashamed. We'll be in the pit. We'll be separated from God forever and ever. Verse 26 is now going to be the segue or, or the, uh, you know, the, the, um, Connecting verses to what we're going to see later on in chapter 38 and 39. <clears throat> Meshach and Tubal are there. Surrounded by the graves of all their hordes. They once struck terror in the hearts of people everywhere. But now they are outcasts all slaughtered by the sword. They are not buried in honor like their fallen heroes. Who went down to the grave with their weapons. Their shields covering their bodies. And their swords beneath their heads. Their guilt rests upon them. Because they brought terror to everyone. While they were still alive. You too Egypt will lie crushed and broken. Among the outcasts. All slaughtered by the sword. Edom is there with its kings and princes, mighty as they were. They also lie among those slaughtered by the sword with the outcasts who have gone down to the pit. All the princes of the north and the Sidonians are there with others who have died. Once a terror, they have been put to shame. They lie there as outcasts with others who were slaughtered by the sword. They share the shame of all who have descended to the pit. I hope you see the, the, the very detailed way that everything is the same for all of these once great and mighty nations. They've all been brought down in shame. Why? Because they didn't acknowledge God as God. They didn't humble themselves. 
And it ends here in the last two verses. When Pharaoh and his entire army arrive, he will take comfort that he is not alone in having his hordes killed, says the Sovereign Lord. Although I've caused his terror to fall upon all the living, Pharaoh and his hordes will lie there among the outcasts who were slaughtered by the sword. I, the Sovereign Lord, have spoken. You see, if you don't acknowledge God now, when will you? On the day of judgment, where every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess, even those that curse God in their life, even those that did not acknowledge that there even was a God, even those that believed in other religions, even those that believed in other ways to salvation, all those people will acknowledge that God is God. And even in the Old Testament, these great and mighty nations, what are they doing? In their shame, they're acknowledging that God is God. And so I pray for us that we too would understand that. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, right? And he will lift you up. And so Father, tonight as we finish this section on a, you know, a nation that, you know, even though today it's still small in comparison to other nations, this nation that was once great, and as we see here, the destruction that takes place, the, the shame that takes place because of their pride, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to look at um, our lives, the pride that we can have at times, the, the things that we claim are ours, the, the abilities that we have that we can be so proud of and, and say, this is of my own doing. And we can be just like Egypt. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to acknowledge, humble ourselves before you acknowledge that, that everything that we have is from you. That these chapters, even though they were written some 2,500 years ago, are just as applicable today. They, they, they are just as um, applicable to our own lives. When we look in the mirror and we see our own pride welling up, all those things that we say that we have done for ourselves, Lord, 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 help us to understand that everything comes from you. And Lord, we thank you for the humble times. We thank you for the times that you give us where we are in um, discipline because of what we have done out of your will. And so, Lord, help us to look closer and closer to you. Help us to be reflections of your glory in this, this world that needs to hear about you. And so, when we tell others about you, help us to be just like Ezekiel was, a person who shows that you are God, that you are the sovereign Lord even today, that you're in, still in control even today that the story that you write history that is being written now is your hand moving even amongst the nations even today so lord we praise you for that and so lord i ask you bless these my friends and my family tonight use us for your glory in jesus name we pray amen
and amen. Thank you guys for coming.